0: Hello everybody, Michael Lombardo here. Welcome to Awaken Podcast. If you are new to the show, we have an episode releasing every Monday and Thursday through charismapodcastnetwork.com. You can also download the Charisma Plus app, and you can get um, our podcast there, over 100 episodes, probably at 120-something episodes now, going into 130 um, free episodes out there for you to receive from. We have interviews every single week, as well as teaching shows where I break down the Word of God, and we dive into various subjects, releasing Revelation, and so um, if you want to tap in, that's fantastic. And for those of you who are listening constantly, thank you so much for listening and being a part of awaken podcast, you could also listen to it on you know Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that podcasts or listen to. And so, awaken podcast based on Ephesians five fourteen. Awake, awake, O sleeper! Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our hearts need to be awakened to the beauty of Jesus, to what He has accomplished for us, how He feels about us, how He how He sees us, our identity in Christ, as well as the calling that is on our lives, the the, the giftings, the purpose that we have, so that we could walk it out. Every single day for the kingdom of heaven. So that's the heartbeat behind this show. And I speak to incredible authors, teachers, pastors, missionaries, friends, family from around the world that have a heart beating for jesus spreading his love and spreading his gospel and so we just want to talk about the lord all he has done and you know we have amazing people on so it's always a joy and so today i have a great guest on with me today he is a uh, pastor he is a teacher his name is brian zand and he founded the word of life church in saint joseph missouri more than 35 years ago and he still serves as lead pastor to the congregation and they are committed to an authentic expression Of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. He's the author of Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. He also wrote a book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. And that's a book that we're going to be discussing today that I read at the beginning of the year. And it's a beautiful book, powerful challenges a lot of mentalities that are not biblical, that are not scriptural, and really releases truth and light. And so that's why I want to have him on my show today. Brian, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Well, my pleasure, Michael. Good to be with you.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So for those, I know I did a little you know introduction here, but for those who might not be familiar with your books or your ministry, I always like to yeah, you know, I, I gave a little background. You're a pastor. I, you know, you're you're an author of several books. I always like to know how people first came to know the Lord.
1: Uh, it's very dramatic. I was uh, 16 years old, high school. Um, uh, some friends took me to this kind of Christian event. Actually, it was David Wilkerson.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. uh,
1: was speaking, and uh, I just had this very, very dramatic encounter with Christ. Uh, at this meeting and then an even more dramatic encounter that night when I got home and I was in my bedroom. And the result was overnight, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. (laughs) And uh, I was leading a ministry by the time I was 17 Mm. that then turned into our church when I was 22. So in one sense, I've been, you know, I've been the pastor of Word of Life Church for 39 years, but I've essentially been doing the work of a pastor for 44 years. In uh-huh. other words, I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is, which I didn't say that was a good idea, but it's just what happened. So, uh uh-huh. uh-huh. so that, yeah, there's, yeah, there's, so that's how I encountered Christ and it was very dramatic. I don't think it always I don't think it's usually that way, but for me, that's the way it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, awesome. I just knew from that night, that was November 9th, 1974, I just knew. Uh, I don't even have any, I don't have a testimony of a call to the ministry or anything like that. I just knew, well, this is now my life. It was that dramatic. Um, mm. and, and indeed it has been. And so <laughs> 39 awesome. years, answering. Travel quite a bit, used to. Lately, that's been somewhat curtailed, you know, in the past year.
2: Uh And
1: uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God was my sixth book. I've written three since then, published three since then, uh, and almost done with the tenth one. And then I'm talking with my agent next week about the 11th. So so I, I also write a lot. Uh, the last decade or so.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's beautiful. I had a life encounter uh, with God, a life transforming encounter, where it was drug addict. Partier, uh, womanizer into a Jesus freak as well. Just one encounter with the Lord. And I just wanted to tell everybody about him. I was the person that I didn't like. I became the person I didn't like. (laughs) When people try to hit you over the head with the Bible, I became that person at 19 years old when I got dramatically, um, you know, awakened to the love of Jesus. And so, anyway, I love talking to people that have a very similar story. And so, um, and I know that you've also progressively come into deeper revelation, um, over the years. And in this book, yeah. sinners in the hands of a loving God, the scandalous truth of the very good news. Um, a lot of people would probably pick up this book and be, um, offended at some of the stuff that is in it, but the gospel is an offense. <laughs> like, like, like the scriptures say, it's just that good. And so I want to, I want to dive into this because it was very enlightening. There was so much truth that was revealed that I feel like will set a lot of people free in the body of Christ. And, uh, let's just start off with this. I know that when people hear the sinners in the hands of a loving God, they they say, oh, this sounds pretty familiar and, and they're right by thinking that. <laughs> they're right by thinking that. It's a Puritan classic by Jonathan Edwards, Sins in the Hands of an Angry God, which is one of the most famous sermons out there. And so tell us a little bit about, like in, in your book, you, you share about your relationship with that book and kind of the journey you've been on to really inspire you, know, inspire you to write this one. Yeah,
1: well, okay. By the time I was, you know, in my early twenties, you know, by this time actually a pastor. And I was very influenced by the eighteenth and nineteenth century revivalists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jonathan John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, and then among those would have been Jonathan Edwards. And you know, I I, I longed to see the kind of great sweeping Awakening that they saw in their day, and so my reasoning was: well, I'll just do what they did. And um, Jonathan Edwards was a Calvinist Puritan, um, actually an intellectual, mm-hmm. and he he's one of the great philosophical minds in American history. People often forget that, but what he's most known for is this sermon they preach, and it's not indicative of his whole ministry, but it is probably the sermon that has more shaped the American religious imagination than any other, entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's it's really well known. I assume many of our listeners are familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people, a lot of people, I don't know if this is still true, but when I was young, this was the case that it was still used. You would encounter it often in high school, in maybe a literature class or a creative writing class, because it's often given as an example of descriptive writing, or imaginative writing, or creative writing. I'll I'll give you a, just because I don't want I don't want anybody to be in the dark about the nature of this sermon. All right, so here's here's a couple of passages from this sermon that was preached. I think seventeen thirty eight or seventeen forty one. Um, okay, Jonathan Edwards. He's preaching. You know, in the American colonies, seventeen forty one. He says. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear, than to have to bear you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. That's that's known as the spider passage. That's probably the most famous. <laughs> but here's one other passage I want to give this and see what I did was I created my own version, um my own copy I should say. I photocopied out of a uh larger work of Edward's Collected sermons, Mm -hmm. and I compiled "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" into my own little booklet. And this is back, you know, uh, when cut and paste was cut and paste, (laughs) scissors Mm -hmm. and glue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And 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 I and I highlighted passages of it, and I memorized parts of it, or adapted it so that I could preach like Jonathan Edwards. Here's here's another passage. It would be dreadful to suffer the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity there will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery." When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. Wow. Right, that last line. Almighty, merciless vengeance, and so this shaped me in how to quote preach the gospel. But in effect, even though it was you can you can do you can do poor theology from good faith. Yeah, you know, I was I was just trying to do the best I could. But what it essentially amounted to was evangelism by terrorism. Sure and it it was almost like kind of a good cop, bad cop routine mm-hmm. so that, so that i so that the gospel ends up being that in some way Jesus is saving us from God, exactly. well, you know we want to be saved, and so so see somebody says well does that does that style of evangelism work I, I, that I, I don't know how to answer that. You can get people to respond, but you're also creating a, kind of a spiritual damage that you're going to have to then try to bring people out of. And so this book is written um, out of, you know, a long journey, right? So, I mean, I've been preaching. I preached my first sermon when I was 16. <laughs> yeah, I'm mm-hmm. 62 now. So, I, you know, I, I've lived a preaching life. And I was imitating the revivalists of the 18th and 19th century. That was kind of who I aspired to be like. Mm -hmm. But on this long journey, because if we keep following Jesus, you know, we won't just stay where we are. I began to realize that although you can use the Bible to depict God as angry, violent, and retributive, well the question is still out is that true? Is that what God is really like? And not just not just the too far ahead, but Michael, but uh, the book essentially is written for those that have probably an instinct that really God is not angry, violent or retributive and yet they want to reconcile that instinct they have with mm-hmm. questions like, well, what about the fear of God? What about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence? What about the violence of the cross? What about hell? That's a big one. What about the violence in the book of Revelation? And so this book is me addressing those kind of questions.
0: Yeah, and you do it systematically, which I love. Each, each chapter, you're talking about the wrath of God, talking about the fear of God, going into the cross. Who crucified Christ? Was it the Father? Was it was it and then you go into hell and then you go into revelation so you do layer it really really well and then tackle each one of these systematically and in 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 a in a very biblical way. And so um let's I want to yeah, There's a lot of
1: scripture. In it, so that's for sure.
0: Oh, there's tons of scripture in it. Yes. And you and you have a high view of scripture. And this is one thing before we dive into, you know, some of the meat here but there's one thing that you say in the book because as you share some of this truth You have mentioned how people have maybe accused you of having a light view of scripture, like not holding the scripture up in the highest, in the highest light, which, which you addressed to be false. And I believe that to be true as well. But you talk about how everything is summed up in Christ and that Christ is what God is saying. Christ is what God is talking about. And how the glory of Moses and Elijah is, is dim in comparison to the light of the Son of God. And we need to have that lens when we read Genesis through Revelation. And maybe we just mm-hmm. lay a little foundation there before we dive into some of the deeper subjects here.
1: Well, yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> the Bible has been um, where I have lived my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I can tell you, I've written 3,500, I'm going to get it right, 3,538 sermons all from the scriptural text. Yeah. So I live in scripture, but what scripture does perfectly is to point us to Jesus. Yes. Ultimately, there is only one perfect revelation of who God is, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. That Jesus is the is the perfect. Well, Colossians one fifteen, the apostle Paul says that Christ is the icon or the image, but it's the Greek word icon of of the invisible God. Mm-hmm. See what happens, Michael, is that people assume they know what God is like. You know, I say, okay, God, and they form an idea. They already have an idea. You know, God's all the omnis. You know, He's omnipresent, mm-hmm. omnipotent. You know, omni whatever, mm-hmm. and. Um, Then, when Christians make the confession that Jesus is God, then they say, okay, I know what God is like and Jesus is that. That's exactly opposite of what we're really supposed to do. What we really should do is say, you know what? We don't know what God is like. We don't. But now we do because God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. So we should not say, oh, I know what God is like and Jesus is that. No. Um, Think about the the poetic prologue in the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the idea. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you get to verse 14, and the word became flesh. This is speaking of the incarnation, the logos, the logic of God, the divine understanding of God's divine self became flesh, Jesus Christ wrapped in swallowing clothes, lying in a manger. Mm. Then you get down to the, the very close of the poetic prologue, verse 18, and John says this, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is near the Father's heart, he has made him known. Yes. Now, hold on here. We might want to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, You, just, John, did you just say that no one has ever seen God? John will say, that's what I wrote. <laughs> And we could say, yeah, but what about Abraham? He saw God, had a meal with him under the oaks of Mamre. What about Jacob? He saw God at Bethel, you know, with the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. What about Moses? He saw God and spoke to him face to face, and his face was shining. What about the 70 elders of Israel that Moses took up on Mount Sinai? And it says, and they saw God and ate and drank. What about what about Isaiah? He, he saw God in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. What about Ezekiel, he had visions of God by the river Kebar. Now, if we say that to John, I'm all all—I'm quite confident John would say, you don't have to teach me the Bible. I know it very well. Yeah. But no matter what visions, revelations, dreams, epiphanies, Christophanies, theophanies people have had in times past, compared with the revelation that we have of God in Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God. So, that that's the theme in one sense that lurks behind the entire book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, that as we form an idea of what God is like, if in the end it doesn't look like Jesus, we've got it wrong. So God is like Jesus. God, God is only perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ.
0: Mm, yes. I, I agree 100%. And that is beautiful. And, and, so, and
1: by the way, that that is, you know, some, I don't know, I don't know who our listeners are, but, you know, someone might hear that and they say, oh, now, nah, you know, BZ, that's just, you know, you and your progressive Christianity, liberal nonsense. Well, first of all, I'm not progressive. I'm not a progressive Christian. I, I, I you can ask the progressive. They would not describe me as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is patristic. This is, what I'm saying that that God that God is only perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ is exactly what the church fathers said. Um, so what I'm saying isn't new. It may be new to you. It may be new to some, but it's not new to Christian theology. In fact, it's quite ancient.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and if people would dig a little bit into the church history and outside of you know because we have so many denominations and we're used to hearing one message, one you know we need to we need to really dive in, dig into the Word of God as well as you know um just pull from so many different streams because I just believe that God is revealed and he's so multifaceted and we, and i and I love that and so. When you talk about, you know, many people would say when you're talking about God is love and perfectly revealed in Jesus, now there's not an angry father behind a loving Christ. Right. And, you know, when we when we share things like this and we talk about the cross being all about forgiveness, which I want to get into towards the end of the episode, going into the picture of the cross here. But many people will say, well, what about the fear of the Lord, just like you mentioned earlier? Or what about divine judgment? And I want to I pulled a few quotes from your book specifically about the fear of the Lord. Um, you say the fear of the Lord um. Uh, is is the wisdom of not acting against love. So in your book, you don't throw away the fear of the Lord. You don't diminish the fear of the Lord. You rightly define the fear of the Lord, talking about how the fear of the Lord is the wisdom of not acting against love, and God is love. Love to hear a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the fear of the Lord is a wonderful beginning place. Uh, I think it's necessary. I think it's an aspect of taking God seriously. Uh, we recognize that there is a grain to the universe. God is love and God is the creator of the universe. And if we will go through life loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, which is the great command of Scripture, you know, Jewish and Christian faith, mm-hmm. um, it tends towards well-being. It doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen, but it tends toward well-being. But if we say, no, you know what? I don't want to love God. I just want to do whatever I want to do. And love myself, and I don't really want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to use my neighbor to my own advantage. Uh, Then we find ourselves going against the grain of the universe, against love, and what happens over time is we begin to suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering. Mm. Um, We can call that experience the wrath of God, because the Bible does, and we can call the wisdom that acknowledges that reality and says, if I go through life acting against love, it's going to ultimately lead to my harm. We can call that the fear of God uh, because the Bible does. But ultimately, as we progress, as we grow in a full revelation of God as revealed in Christ, we eventually come to the place where, I mean, I would be dishonest, Michael, if I said that I'm afraid of God. I'm no longer afraid of God because I know that God has no... um disposition toward me, but one of unconditional love. And God intends nothing but for my own well-being. Yet I do still acknowledge that if I act contrary to what is being revealed to me about God, it will tend toward my hurt. But I can't say that I'm afraid of God. And this is what, this is what, um, I mean, this is what St. Anthony, the great desert father, the essentially the founder of Christian monasticism, mm-hmm. I mean, he says, he says I, I no longer fear God. I love him for perfect love casts out all fear. So as we grow, and I don't, I'm not saying it's a starting point necessarily, but as we go grow toward the depth of revelation that God is love, that is possible to receive, I think eventually, as John writes, there just is no longer any room for fear that love cast but but I'm not talking about a cavalier uh, attitude that, that oh, sin doesn't matter God's love, it doesn't matter if we sin, it doesn't matter what we do. No, I'm not I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying the wages of sin remain death. Yes. But mm-hmm. I understand that God is love and God and any kind of suffering that comes into my life is consequential, not retributive. In other words, I'm we're we're more punished by our sins than for our sin. Sin carries inherently within it its own punishment. Now, we can make the mistake in a more childlike faith or a childish faith or an immature faith, we can make the mistake in thinking, okay, what's happened is I have now angered God, and God is now punishing me. Uh, that's, That's one way of looking at it. You can find texts like that but that's not the fullness of revelation. Again, this is something the church fathers were very clear on. They they were very clear in saying that the wrath of God is a metaphor for divine consent to our, just to the consequences that will befall us when we transgress, when we begin to act against love. But the church fathers were deeply committed, and I'm gonna use a technical term here, I don't wanna to get too theological, but they were deeply committed to the idea of the impassibility of God, and that is that God is not moved by external forces or not moved or changed by emotions. Mm-hmm. And so they would say, or they did say, you know, God no no more literally becomes angry than God literally goes to sleep. And yet there are passages in the scripture where, we, where, where God is awakened, where God is slumbering, and, and then our prayers awaken God. Well, that's a metaphor. Uh, and the church fathers would say, The wrath of God is a metaphor for divine consent to our own destructive wills. Mm
0: -hmm. The Apostle Uh, Paul, even. Again, I I keep
1: keep appealing to the authority of the church, Mm -hmm. because I I know how certain people hear this. They hear this as as something new, as something frivolous, as something that's just not taking God seriously, when in fact, uh, this is how the earliest Christian theologians understood and talked about these kind of issues.
0: Mm-hmm. And many people's understanding has to do with how we're taught the word of God right now from pastors and teachers that have been the Bible school, y- you know, and so we, a lot of, you know, if we're, in, if we're evangelical, if we're charismatic, if we're, um, you know, if we're Baptist, you know, we're, we're receiving one style of teaching and we don't yeah. get to dig into the gems of the early church fathers um and into, you know, and, and see different viewpoints of the word of God. And this is very important for people to see the legitimacy of what we're sharing here. But, um and so this is, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, even Romans chapter one, he, the apostle Paul refers to God's wrath in that manner, saying how they received in their body the consequence of their yeah. actions. I don't have the exact verse for that, but the apostle Paul talks about the wrath of God in that manner.
1: Yes, precisely. Mm-hmm. Precisely, yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, and so, you know, Tackling subjects like this in a biblical way, another quote of yours is talking about God's judgment. You do not throw away God's judgment. You rightly define it, like I said, but you talk about how it's not God's lust for vengeance. And many people have that viewpoint of God's judgment, like He can't wait to strike people. And the, the Bible actually says he's slow to anger and quick to loving kindness. We have this view of God like he is slow to loving kindness and quick to anger. But the scriptures, you know, you, you, well, you say in your book, certainly there is divine judgment, but it is a judgment based on God's love and commitment to restoration. That is such a paradigm shift there. I'd love to hear a little about that.
1: Yeah, God's God's judgment or wrath or punishment, whatever word you want to draw upon is never retributive. That is, it's never punishment for the sake of punishment. Rather, it's either consequential or restorative. Mm-hmm. Um, God is always committed to restoring His damaged creation, His lost creation, His wayward children, however you want to talk about it. Um What we have is we have some corrupted theology that really, in one sense, it began about a thousand years ago with Bishop Anselm in England, Mm -hmm. uh, but really took off with Calvin in the 16th century. And that is that what Jesus is doing on the cross is in some way saving us from God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, That God is satisfying his wrath, you'll hear that kind of language, that God, that justice has to be uh, satisfied. And what they mean by justice is punishment. Uh, You'll hear people say that God can't just forgive. Well, of course God can just forgive, that's what God does. Uh, If you say God can't just forgive but satisfies justice, you must understand that what you've now done is made God penultimate to some concept of justice that can only be satisfied by punishment. And you've made justice above God, so at the cross, uh, Jesus doesn't save us from God, but Jesus reveals God as savior. Um, the cross is not where the cross is not where uh, God punishes Jesus in order to forgive, but the cross is where God in Christ suffers as he forgives, so for example when In John's gospel, we're told repeatedly, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's over and over and over. You Jesus says things like, I only say what the Father says. I only do what I see the Father do. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm -hmm. So that when Jesus prays from the cross, Father, forgive them. The Son is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. The Father is not saying, "Well, okay, mm-hmm. for your sake, Jesus, I'll forgive them," mm-hmm. you know, because I because I can take my wrath out on you, uh, I will now change my mind about them. No, the the Son never, never acts as an agent of change upon the Father. The Son only reveals the Father, yes. and so when Jesus says, "Father, forgive them." He is revealing what the heart of the Father is and always has been, and that is one of love and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get into a lot of theological trouble if we try to divide the Trinity at the cross. If we see somehow the Father and the Son acting opposite one another, or the Son changing the Father, that isn't what happens at the cross. The cross is where um, well, perhaps my, my all-time favorite theological sentence comes from uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar. I'll say it nice and slow. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the cross is not where Jesus changes God. The cross is where God in Christ is perfectly revealed to the world:
2: Yeah, wow.
1: Now now again, I understand that most of most of our listeners, you know they're in North America, probably probably come from some Protestant background, um, they're going to hear those like, "I've never thought about the cross like that. That's because they're used to hearing Calvin's version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is only, it's old, it's 500 years old, but, you know, the church is 2,000 years old. That's right. And if we talk mm-hmm. about our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox East, uh, they have never, at any period in their time, ever thought about the cross as where somehow uh, Jesus acts to change God's attitude towards us. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: if, we want, if we want to make it a simple axiom, we could say it like this. Jesus doesn't change God's mind about us, but he does change our mind about God.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, and so many of my listeners have been primed because you know, we we talk about this on the show a lot. For the new listeners, this might be new to them, but this was transformational for me. I got saved. You know, I'm 33 years old. But I got saved in 2008, and uh, about 10 years ago, I had an upheaval in, in in my thought processes when it when it comes to what Jesus actually accomplished in the cross, a revelation of the Father, um, a revelation of. My death to sin and who I am in Christ and my identity. And this was all this this is huge in my life in terms of setting me free and just walking in, you know, unbroken union with God and just abiding in his love and in his pleasure. And I love you talked about how we weren't Jesus wasn't changing God on the cross. He was changing us. You know, the blood yeah. the blood wasn't for God, like he needed a sacrifice. It was from God, but it was for us. And it's a glorious yeah. picture of forgiveness and his undying love. And I want to quote yeah, this. Yeah, probably, we can- this is probably about a five-sentence quote from you, but I want to I quote you, and then we'll, 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 uh, we'll go from here. But this is from Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. You say this, the cross is not a picture of payment, the cross is a picture of forgiveness. Good Friday was not about divine wrath, Good Friday is about divine love. Calvary is where we see, is not where we see how violent God is, Calvary is where we see how violent our civilization is. And the justice of God is not uh, retributive. The justice of God is restorative. And justice that is purely retributive, uh, I'm sorry, um, retributive uh, changes nothing. The cross is not where God finds a whipping boy to vent his rage upon. The cross is where God saves the world through self-sacrificing love. And the only thing that God calls justice is setting the world right, not punishing an innocent substitute for the petty sake of appeasement and that theology that that you're talking about here that you're really just going against with everything here on this in these five or six senses penal substitution and this it came from you know Calvin exactly what you're talking about this idea that someone needed to be punished you know Jesus took the sin of the world you know um, in that moment and gee, God needed a sacrifice to forgive us it's this lie of penal substitution that has really harmed the minds and the hearts of so many believers where we feel like we're separated from God when we sin or God God is disgruntled, angry with us, you know, uh, taking our salvation away from us if we do sin and all these different things. And so, you know, this is just a paradigm shift for so many people. I want to read that because this paragraph was really um, spoke volumes to my heart. And I really just want to kind of close the podcast with this. Uh, how could we just for someone who is struggling with this idea of of God, what would you what would you say to them in terms of? um in terms of maybe they have questions shooting off in their mind right now. Um, How could we kind of drive this point home?
1: Well, I think we'll, we'll let Jesus help us with this. Mm -hmm. And we'll go to what's sometimes called the gospel in the gospel. Mm. And that is the parable of the prodigal son. And everybody knows that story because it's so beautiful. And there's that moment when the father sees the son at a great distance, and the reason the father sees the prodigal son at a great distance is because he's looking for him. Mm -hmm. And he's now turned toward home, and what happens? He runs to the son and embraces and forgives, and soon there'll be a fatted calf and all that. You know the story. But with this later modern uh, insertion into the gospel theory of atonement that comes via Anselm and Calvin, you have to alter the parable of the prodigal son so that it's like this. And when the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to the servants' quarters where he satisfied his wrath by beating a whipping boy and then came and received and forgave his son. No, there's none of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's, no, there's no retribution. There's no punishment. Um, what, now, in that parable, though, there is someone Who is insistent that there has to be punishment, and because there hasn't been sufficient punishment, something's not right, and that's the elder brother. Mm. And the elder brother, with a commitment to retributive justice, that there must be punishment, uh, now excludes himself from the party. And we could say it like this. He has placed himself in the outer darkness... With weeping and gnashing of teeth. But even then, the father comes to him and just pleads with him, says, You know, come, just come to the party. And the, the only thing he has to do to come to the party is just to acknowledge that the way the father is, is gracious. Wow. And, that, and that, and see, what the, what the younger son, the prodigal son, what was lost, you know, the inheritance that was squandered in the far country, it can never be recovered. I mean, it's just it's just lost. And so justice is not about balancing scales or anything like that. The only thing that will suffice for justice with the Father is the restoration of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, it's the love of God that, that has the final say. Not punishment, not wrath, not judgment, not um, a distorted idea of justice. What justice is, in fact, is the restoration of relationship. And so... Uh, I would just encourage our listeners to go ahead and dare to believe that God is just as good as you could imagine Jesus being <laughs> yeah. the sinner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Christ is—the only people that Jesus is ever harsh with are those who are harsh with sinners, right? Yeah, really. You know, Pharisees and the like. Um, if you will just simply be humble and say, I'm a sinner and I need mercy— there will be oceans of mercy right there for you, always. Yes. And, that, and you know, people say, well, if you, if you preach God like that, people, it'll give people a license to sin. I don't know. People sin without a license. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and and I, I think I'm willing to bet on the attractive beauty of the love of God. Mm-hmm. That once I re- realize that God is perfectly revealed in Christ, and unconditional love, it doesn't make me want to sin. It makes me want to draw near to God and be conformed into the image of Christ.
0: Amen. Amen. Just like the Word of God says, we have dominion over sin, not because we are under the law, but because we are under grace. It is the grace there of God, go. it is the grace of God that teaches us to live a holy life in this present age, like the Apostle Paul teaches time and time of time again. Grace is an empowerment to live like Jesus we need to receive his grace to truly walk free. And so this is um I believe this is imperative for me personally. I was set free from many sinful bondages that I couldn't break free from on my own. It's when I began to receive the unconditional love of God, realizing that mm-hmm. there's nothing I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing I could do to make him love me less. I am loved, and that is the end of the story. And when I realized that, and when I encountered the unconditional love of God, when I feel like I, des- I deserved it the least, that's when I uh, began to walk free, not because I had to or else, but because I wanted to and because I felt empowered to because of his love and his pleasure and his delight in me. And so this is, this is an essential message and I don't believe this is just a message. I believe this is the message. I believe this is the gospel yeah. of our Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. And so that's why I wanted to have you on the show. I truly believe that the that the listener should grab a copy of Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. And you have many other books. And so how can people, I know they can go on Amazon, but how could people connect with um, your ministry as well as maybe, I know you have a few books that you've released since this one. And so how could people get a hold of those as well?
1: You know, uh, th- this is the value of having an unusual name. <laughs> yeah. If you just Google Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D, Zond, mm-hmm. you'll find me. And mm-hmm. I'm active on social media, quite a bit on Twitter, Instagram, a little bit on Facebook. You'll find uh, – I have a blog, brianzond.com. But if you just Google my name, you'll find all that stuff there, and you'll find the books and the podcasts, which are just my sermons. But mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Or you can also go to W-O-L-C. Those four letters, like Word of Life Church, but Word of Life Church was already taken. So we got wolc.com, and there's hundreds, if not uh, a thousand or more, archived sermons and all that kind of stuff, or the YouTube channel. Just, just Brian Zond Word of Life, you'll find the various portals to find what I'm doing.
0: Yes. Yes. And I highly recommend to pick it up. It really does challenge a lot of thought processes that we have that we didn't even realize are there. And I think that when somebody addresses it and puts it in different language, we start to realize like, wow, I guess I did believe that. That seems crazy now that I'm now that I'm I'm reading it in this way that I would actually believe this way and believe that God is this way and that, you know, um, believe that Jesus did this or that Jesus when he was. So anyways, I just when it's put in in different language, when you're reading through it, there's a lot of mentalities that are unbiblical that are challenged, and there's so much truth and scriptural evidence um, being brought forth to really stretch your mind, and and you know your heart will bear witness to the truth. We are children of God, and your spirit will leap, and your heart will bear yeah. witness to the truth. And so, Brian, thank you so much for joining me in the podcast today. What a blessing I definitely received and enjoyed talking to you today. And man, so powerful.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thank you. It's, it's good to be born again, again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's what it feels right? like when you step I mean, into I mean, that. I,
1: I heard you tell your story. My story isn't similar mm-hmm. in some ways that, that we mm-hmm. start with Jesus, we say we're born again, but mm-hmm. if we'll stay on the journey, the day will probably come when we're born again, again. Yeah. And it just gets better.
0: <laughs> glory to glory. We're just going deeper. We're just going deeper yeah. with the Lord. There's there you so go. much more to, to uh, discover. And so for those who are listening right now, thank you so much. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so we can get it out to more people so they can be blessed, inspired, awakened by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless you guys, and I'll speak to you next time on Awakened Podcast. Hello, everybody. Michael Lombardo here. Let me tell you about this amazing online store, The Hope Filled Journey. Um definitely want to check that out today. Michelle and Renee Torres, they started up an online store in obedience to the Holy Spirit in the midst of a crazy year, full time jobs, raising four small children. They stepped out in faith, and God is honoring it every step of the way. It's www.thehopefilledjourney.com. This is where you'll find extraordinary products, clothes, fashion accessories. Jewelry and more. You'll be able to find amazing clothes for spring, handmade jewelry. Their goal is to inspire faith through through their product line as well as high quality in all they do and produce. Check it out. It's the hopefilledjourney.com. And also, if you today, if you go, well, you got a promo code AWAKEN promo code AWAKEN. If you go to the website, you can get 25% off of all full priced items and all orders over $60 will ship free. And so that's 25% off today, all full price items and any orders, $60 or more will ship free. And so make sure to go to the website that is www.thehopefilledjourney.com and make sure to use promo code AWAKEN.